Hello and welcome to the Ham and High podcast. My name's Andre Longley and my guest this week is engineer Dame Joe De Silva. With vast experience working in disaster zones, Muswell Hill's Dame Joe is currently Global Director of Sustainable Development at the company Arup. She received her Damehood and previously a CBE for work in international development and for her contribution to humanitarian relief. We recorded this podcast on February 3rd, 2022, before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Dame Joe De Silva, thank you very much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be with you. Part of the reason we've uh, we got in touch earlier this year was suddenly on my uh, uh, my screen at work, I could see your name popping up, and I was like, well, "What's that? What's that?" And the story that was popping up was a year and a half ago when you got, or a year ago when you got your damehood, and it's like, "Okay, what's happened here that she's in the news?" And it turns out it was Desert Island Discs, which has an impact on our page views, which shows what a big thing it is. Um, so we'll talk a bit about that. And to be honest, I want to talk a lot about that because I'm a big Bowie and Dylan fan. So we could spend the whole 20 minutes on that. But um, your damehood was for um, humanitarian work. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about how you got into that? And in particular, I'm interested, given we've all been through a fairly traumatic couple of years what was your experience of when you first found yourself in a disaster zone um and uh, and what what were you doing there okay so those those are you know big questions um you know i'm a great believer that life is what happens to you when you're planning to do other things and you know i read engineering at cambridge university but I fell in love with traveling. It was sort of cheaper to go and travel in Egypt or Jordan or India in my summer holidays than it was to stay at home. And so when I graduated, I went and lived and worked in India for a year um, in the jungle and then came back to the UK and got a job as an engineer and then came across a charity called Registered Engineers for Disaster Relief, which is known as Redar, which trained up engineers like myself so that when a disaster struck, we were ready to go overseas and help, a bit like a sort of territorial army of engineers. And I did all of that because it was interesting, it was fun, there were interesting people. I found myself at weekends building Oxfam water tanks in the middle of Buckinghamshire or putting up a Bailey Bridge in Wales. And it all became very real in 1994 when the Rwandan genocide happened. And I came back to my desk one day and there was a post-it note on my phone saying, call Redar. And I called Redar and they said, could you go to Tanzania next week um, to go and help in the refugee camps there and my immediate reaction was terror fear you know I'd never been to Africa I'd done all this training but you know I was being put on the spot and it was a big leap of faith really in the organization I thought if they think that I can do this then I can do this you know they know what they're talking about they wouldn't have asked me if they didn't think I was the right person to do the job I found myself um, on a plane 
going to Tanzania and flying across Tanzania to the Rwandan border, where there were tens of thousands of refugees coming over the border every day. And I had a role as a camp engineer, which is a sort of do a bit of everything. And I spent the next three months um, building latrines, fixing the roads, uh, building warehouses, putting in the infrastructure that's needed to, mm. to save lives. So it's a heck of a leap from what sounds like a bit of an adventure park training session, which must have been fun, to being in the middle of, well, what was probably the biggest humanitarian crisis of my lifetime, uh, the Rwandan genocide. Um, so yeah, you were, you were frightened before going, obviously anybody would be. Did you find that um, your training and adrenaline kicked in once you were on the ground? Yes, I think the training was fantastically important. Um, I think it gave me hooks mentally to hang my experiences on. So rather than uh, drowning in a sea of experience, I could actually make sense of the things that I was experiencing because I'd heard about them in training courses. I also got some very practical skills that I could put, put into use. And so you feel you're making a difference and that gives you the confidence to go on and make a little bit more difference. And it's a bit like being a doctor. You know, doctors have got skills and they see people that are sick and they reach out and they help. As a civil and structural engineer, I realized I've got very practical skills. I know how to design and build a bridge. I know how to fix the roads. I know how to go and buy a whole lot of eucalyptus trees and turn those trees into a building that can be used as a distribution center for food. And that was very empowering. And I always say that when I went out to Rwanda, I'd studied engineering, I'd practiced engineering, but it was in Rwanda I decided that actually I wanted to be an engineer. Um, I felt lucky to have a set of skills that could really make a difference to people's lives when they were suffering so much. And such a creative role as well. It must have been that example of the eucalyptus trees and, and putting that to use. There must be a lot of coming up with solutions and showing initiative because the, the, the existing, well, speak blithely going to being Q and getting what you need it wasn't presumably the case. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, that's why I decided to study engineering in the first place is because I love design. I love the creative process. And, you know, I'm a designer at heart. When I was a, a youngster, I used to you know, design my own clothes. And, you know, I was I, I liked sewing. I liked needlework and I you know, designed dresses. You know, I didn't go into fashion. Um, I decided that what would be exciting would be to design buildings. But, you know, design is a wonderfully creative process and it's also a really collaborative process because you don't do it alone. It's like making music. You're doing it with other people. Um, so as an engineer, you're working with architects, you're working with acousticians, you know, when you're working in places like London. And, you know, when you're working out in the field, you know, you're working alongside other people um, and you're coming up with solutions and you're thinking, what's the best solution in these circumstances? And then you're implementing it and you're seeing the results and it's very satisfying. 
it's uh, that's fascinating it's, it's one of the things that's come out in doing this podcast in particular possibly because the format of it that it always strikes me how much similarity there is between um professions so if I, if I speak to comedians or um writers or engineers as you are we're all and newspaper people people and, and reporters we're all in the same game we're creating we're finding solutions we're looking at an end point and there's certain rules to what we do but nothing is ever actually entirely formulaic so you're finding your ways to to make it all fit together and when you when you started out did you well you said when you were younger you designed clothes so you always knew you were a creative person in that way I was always a creative person but I was never an artist Ah. And I was always kind of clear about the difference between the two. I always think that, you know, art is an expression. Um, it's the artist expressing, expressing something about themselves, whereas design is always responding to a need. And I can really understand design. It says, you know, what, what is it that's needed? And then you come up with a solution. So there's a starting point for it, whereas the starting point for art is inside the artist. The starting point for design is outside. It's that need in society. And that was the other thing that was really important for me. And another reason why I chose engineering is I just wanted to do something that was useful for society. You know, I, I didn't want to sort of I wasn't really excited by making money or you know, being powerful. It was actually I want to do something that's useful and contributes to society. Um, and I think, you know, engineers are the, are the doctors of the world in a way. Um, you know, we create the stage set on which life plays out is, is what I always say. You know, we can't do without water systems, without roads, without buildings. We rely on them every day. We take them for granted. And, you know, there's a lot of engineers in the background who, who people don't even think about. Um, and that was very, very true, for instance, during COVID. I mean, we all took for granted that we could work at home, um, that we would have electricity, that we would have water. But actually, there was some very serious thinking go on, going on um, within the energy companies and the water companies, thinking about how can we make sure that that supply is continuous? And so there were engineers who were living in hotels for shifts of six weeks at a time to make sure that they didn't get COVID so that they could continue to run the power stations that we rely on. Um, you know, and they're key workers just in the same way that nurses and school teachers are key workers. No, uh, exactly. And, and it was something we became at least briefly aware of, wasn't it? Because it the uh, we the media caught on to the fact that actually with a huge changing of um of habits through the country that puts different strains on the infrastructure and presumably it's down to you guys to the engineers to make sure we don't wreck it all by all turning up at once the biggest challenge the world is facing most likely now is climate change and the results there of which are going to be huge and, and varied and in various times and things um and i suppose this is a non-question but engineering must be at the forefront of 
uh, the capacity to cope with changes like that. Are there any major areas that you can see that um, maybe should be focused on that aren't being focused on at the moment? Yeah, I mean, much of my work now is um, centred on climate change, both the urgent need to decarbonize and the reality that the weather is changing rapidly and we're experiencing the impacts of climate change, whether it's flooding or bushfires or heat waves. And there is urgent action that is needed in almost every aspect of society to combat that. Um, much of the focus and rightly is on the need to very rapidly transition away from fossil fuels, you know, away from coal, away from oil. Um, and we need to get to clean gas as a transition fuel. Um, and that's something that, that needs to happen, you know, rapidly over the next decade so that we're relying on renewable energy. What people don't realize is that there's a balance to be struck between the speed at which we can create renewable energy and the speed that we can abandon fossil fuels. And potentially there's a gap between those two. So we also need to change our habits as individuals and consume less energy. Um, and that's a, that's a behavioral shift in society generally that is overlooked. So we talk about, let's get out of fossil fuels, we need to create renewable energy. And there's this unspoken assumption that there will always be enough energy. But actually what we really need to do is to reduce energy demand because then we'll get to renewable energy quicker. The other, the same is true in terms of transport. You know, there's a lot um, of media around the switch to electric vehicles. And yes, electric vehicles don't use petrol. That's much better for the environment. But actually, um, a lot of energy is used in creating cars in the first place. So if we still create cars for the next 20, 30, 40 years, even though they're electric cars, we're still putting emissions into the atmosphere. And so the shift we need to make there is to move to more of a sharing society where we're using things like zip cars. And you know, recognizing that the reality is on my street and most people's streets, the cars are parked on the street for 80% of the time. And that's really very inefficient. And we need to move to society where cars are being used 100% of the time because someone uses them in the morning to take the kids to school, then someone uses them to do something else in the middle of the day and someone else uses them in the afternoon. And then there's sort of the third very big area is recognizing that actually the buildings that we live in, that we work in, um, consume a huge amount of energy um, and therefore create a lot of emissions. And for the last five or 10 years, the focus has been on operational energy. That's the energy to do with lighting and heating. But increasingly people are realizing, oh, there's a lot of energy involved making buildings, just like there's a lot of energy involved in making cars. And so we actually need to sort of shift this paradigm that we're in at the moment, which is, you know, a, a big company wants a new a, a headquarters or an office and they knock down the old building and they build a new one. Well, actually, what we should be thinking of much more is how do we refurbish buildings? And so there's a building around the corner from our office here 
um, in Triton Square, where that building was refurbished by taking the facade off and setting up a pop-up factory, refurbishing the facade and putting it all back on again. You know, and that's really where the future is, is this, this, this not, not recycling, but just reusing and maximizing the use of things. On the zip cars, that's a very interesting point because I suppose it's an interesting way to look at it is we could just stop making cars now, couldn't we? And use the ones we've got. And although lots of those would be petrol, how would that compare in terms of the, the, the impact on the, uh, the environment? There must, be a, a, there must be a way to compromise and reduce the number that are made whilst using what's there. Well, the government's committed to, um, by 2030, have, having they want to have phased out uh, new cars, which are reliant on fossil fuels. Ooh. But if you look at all the cars out there, you know, are they all going to be replaced by electric vehicles? Or are we actually just going to take less journeys? Because we don't commute as much as we did. We don't necessarily need our cars as much. So if you've got people who are you know, going back to their office two days a week and someone's going on a Tuesday and a Thursday and someone's going on a Wednesday and a Friday, they could share a car if, if they needed a car to, to, to get there. Um, so that, you know, the, the, but these are, very big, these are very big societal shifts in, in how we travel. And you know, linked to that are things like um, needing to promote active travel, you know, making cycling safer um, and more enjoyable. So people actually want to get on their bicycles to go to work because that's got health benefits as well. And I think the, I think the hiatus caused by COVID has helped us all break out of the habits that we were in before and think, oh, there might, there might be a better way. There might be a different way of doing this. We don't have to keep on doing it the same way we've been doing things for the last 10, 20 years. So to put you on the spot, um, you live in Muswell Hill, which is obviously well known for not having the best rail links. Um, are you, and I'm speaking to you right now in your office, do you cycle in? <laughs> so before COVID I cycled in, um, and, but I came in on the bus and the tube today uh, and the reason for that is because Muswell Hill is at the top of a big hill. <laughs> and I'm afraid that my fitness has gone downhill uh, as a result of COVID. And I wasn't confident that I'd be able to bicycle up West Hill, um, uh, you know, up to Highgate, which is the way home. Um, so I think I need to get a bit of training in, in order to be able to get back on my bicycle. Yeah, you're not alone there. I'm, I'm a cyclist who potters around the city but I've never cycled up Highgate Hill or um well I'm thinking about getting an electric bike so maybe that'll be the answer bringing together your work and um uh, climate change and your experience in disaster zones um specifically on where there's going to be an impact it's going to be sharp for some communities obviously coastal communities are often talked about are there major engineering challenges that that you see as the priority for that i think that um having worked in post-disaster situations 
I have firsthand experience of what what it looks like when a whole community is physically affected, whether that's an earthquake or whether that's a major flood event or whether that's a tsunami. I spent you know a year or so out in in Southeast Asia in the immediate aftermath of the Indian Ocean tsunami. You know, and what happens is that you've got thousands of people who can't meet their most basic needs for shelter or food or water or electricity or warmth. And you whole communities are, are devastated. And we have the ability to predict where communities are most vulnerable and to take measures to protect those communities. Now, in some cases that might be building a seawall, but equally well, it might be restoring the dunes or in Southeast Asia, mangroves and swamps, green infrastructure, which can actually protect us. You know, one of the areas where I do a lot of work is, is on resilience. It's, it's actually really thinking about how things might fail and making things stronger or, or more adaptable so that we've got a plan B when, when things happen. Um, in this country, uh, flooding you know, is, is a very significant risk. You know, we have had planning policy for decades, which means that we've built in floodplains and therefore we have people living or working in floodplains and they're vulnerable. But there are, you can't stop the rivers flooding necessarily, but it might be that we end up having more early warning systems so that people are told, you know, I'm afraid you've got to evacuate your home in, you know, because there's a risk that it will be flooded. And I think we're moving into a, an era where there's just much more uncertainty and people are going to, you know, some people know that their houses flood. If you go, if you go and talk to people in this country, some of whom have living in houses that are flooded very badly because they live in floodplains, some of them are still living there because they want to live there. They're prepared mm -hmm. to live with that risk because the benefits of living next to a beautiful river outweigh in their minds the risk that they might get flooded. You know, other people are still living there because the value of their house has gone down and they can't sell it. But the extraordinary thing is that risk is a very subjective thing. Um, you know, what you perceive as risky and what I perceive as risky, um, you know, is very different. And, you know, we, we really just have to be continuously adapting to a changing climate. Um, and we all know the climate's changing. Uh, you know, I grew up in a world where there was always snow at Christmas. And, um, you know, I can't remember a white Christmas in London. Um, there was one in my child, in my children's life, in my children's childhood, we had one, one white Christmas. And then you never quite know, we might still have a snowy April, might we, this year? We'll <laughs> might <see>. do. <laughs> um, you referenced, uh, you, you snuck in a reference to John Lennon earlier as well with 
life's what happens when you're busy making other plans. I can't <laughs> remember which song it's from. You obviously are a, a music fan. And without going through your whole Desert Island discs, I think that the Bowie was Sound and Vision, wasn't it? And the Dylan was Not Dark Yet. And you had Joni Mitchell as well, Big Yellow Taxi. How, um, I mean, those artists and, and generally, what role does music play in your life? Um, well, the David Bowie, um, I mean, David Bowie was my sort of big introduction and love of music because of my older sister, Alex, who sadly died two years ago. And, you know, we had bedrooms next to each other and, you know, we used to dance away to David Bowie. And, um, you know, I just loved his music and, it's, and, it, and it, it has been the soundtrack of, of my life. Um, I got into Dylan a bit later. Um, it's very sort of, you know, soulful music. I think Dylan and, and Joni Mitchell at the same time. I, I realised when I was choosing my Desert Island Discs that I, I really like singer-songwriters. You know, I realised um, the other thing that I realised um, is that most of the artists that made it to my Desert Island I've seen live. And, you know, live music is such a special thing. And it's something that, you know, has been absent from most of our lives for the last two years. Um, but I think is is really important. And I really feel for musicians who haven't had the opportunity to play, you know, so much live music for musicians is, is a really important part of, of their lives. Um, but, you know, I mean, I live with um, Graham and two now teenage young 20s children, all who, who are obsessed by music. And so, you know, there's different things, you know, playing every day. I, I barely get a look in. The only time I get to listen to my music is on my earphones when I'm walking the dog. <laughs> and the rest of the time it's what Stormzy or whatever. I know we've got we've gone through Stormzy. My <laughs> my son's very into techno at the moment, but that's fine because as you know from my Desert Island discs, there was a period when I was into techno and house music too. So it just makes me feel very old. <laughs> I can't <laughs> imagine going out clubbing now. Yeah, no, I was going to say it was Underworld was in the um, the desert, desert Island Disc as well. And it's, um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the same, I'm mid-40s, I'm in the same boat in that way. And the Underworld still seems modern to me, but I'm sure to your children, um, it's like me looking back on the Beatles. Um, well, they, actually, I've, I mean, I've seen Underworld live three times. And uh, the second time was at the Roundhouse in Camden. And my daughter got tickets too. And so I was sort of near the back with some of the older people, we were just getting into the music and she was right up front. It was one of the first gigs she ever went to. Um, but I think that's what's nice about music now is it, it's, it's, it's more enduring and, and the youngsters are picking up on music that we listened to, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you very much for speaking to me today. It's um, been fascinating and great to talk music as well and all the best for 2022. Thank you and to you too. Thank you so much to Dame Joda Silva for speaking to me. If you enjoyed the podcast hit subscribe and we'll be back soon.